podcast you're about to listen to contains a class 4 information hazard. Some listeners may experience prolonged bouts of fear, waking anxiety, or nightmares of eternal torture in the cyber dungeons of the Great Basilisk, attended to by the Peelers in Black and the Thirteen Children of the Flame. Also, appetite loss and constipation. Proceed with caution. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And since it's October, we are, of course, still exploring monsters, terrifying ideas, and so forth. And boy, have we got one for you today. I just want to issue a warning right at the beginning here Mm -hmm. that today's episode is going to concern something that a few people would consider a genuine information hazard, as in an idea that is itself actually dangerous. Now, I I don't – having looked into it, I don't think that is the case. I don't think this episode will hurt you. But just a warning, if you think you're susceptible to terror or nightmares or something when presented with a thought experiment or the possibility of being, say, sent to a literal hell created by technology and you think that idea could infect you, could make you afraid, this might not be the episode for you. Right. But then again, I assume you're a listener to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. You've probably already encountered some thought hazards on here. You've survived those. Uh, Generally speaking, I have faith in you to survive this one. However, if you are going to take either of our warnings seriously, I will let you know that the first section of this podcast is going to deal with the mythical basilisk. Uh, the folkloric basilisk and some of the, uh, you know, the monstrous fun to be had there before we explore the idea of Rocco's basilisk. And in that, we are going to be talking about this uh, this idea that emerges where technological singularity, navel-gazing, thought experimentation, a little d- dash of creepypasta and some good old-fashioned f- uh, supernatural thinking all converge into this kind of nightmare scenario. Now – As we said, this idea is believed by some to be a genuinely dangerous idea and that even learning about it could put you at some kind of risk. I think there are strong reasons to believe that this is not the case and that thinking about this idea will not put you at risk. But again, if you're concerned, you should stop listening now or stop listening after we stop talking about the mythical basilisk. Now, I have – I just want to say at the beginning, uh, listeners have suggested us talk about Rocco's basilisk before, this idea that uh, is – at least purportedly an information hazard, a dangerous idea. And uh, I've, I've hesitated to do it before, not because I think it's particularly plausible, uh, but just because, you know, I wonder what is the level of risk that you should tolerate when propagating an idea. If you think an idea is unlikely but maybe has a 0.00001% chance of causing enormous harm to the person you tell it to, should you say the idea or not? I don't know. I feel like people generally don't exercise that kind of caution when they're like sharing links with you. Like sometimes they'll be like, like not safe for work, but (laughs) – but then you click on it anyway, and then sometimes you're like, oh, well, I, I wish I had not seen that, or I wish I had not read that, and now that's in my head. Now that's in my head forever. Well, one of the problems with this idea is whatever you think about uh, whether or not you should discuss ideas that may be dangerous to hear in some extremely unlikely off chance, uh, part of the problem is what happens when those ideas are just already set loose in in society? I mean, now people on television shows and all over the internet are talking about this idea. There are a bunch of articles out 
out about it. So it's not like you can keep the cat in the bag at this point. Right. This Rocco's Basilisk has already been a, a, a gag point on the uh, hit HBO show Silicon Valley, which is a fabulous show. And I love the way that they treated uh, Rocco's Basilisk on it. But uh, yeah, if, if they're covering it, there's no danger in us covering it, too. That's the way I look at it. Right. And at least I would hope that the way we cover it can give you some reasons to think you should not be afraid of digital hell and also to think about the general class of what should be done about something that could have, in fact, been a real information hazard in some other case. So that's all our whole preamble for uh, before we get to that section. But before we get to that section, we're going to be talking about basilisks today. Boy, is the basilisk a great monster. <laughs> yes, also known as the basilcock, the basilcock, the basilicock. Basically, <laughs> any version of that, of basil and cock that you can put together, uh, uh, that you can slam together, uh, then it has been referred to as such at some point in its history. Now, a lot of people, I think, probably encountered a version of the basilisk from Harry Potter. But Robert, I know that was not your entryway. Right. I encountered it for the first time, I believe, in Dungeons and Dragons. Of course. Uh, because it's a, it's a multi-legged reptile with a petrifying gaze. Um, Say that again? A multi-legged reptile with a petrifying gaze. Petrifying gaze. Yeah, so it's it gaze turns you to stone. Turn you to stone, yeah. And I, is that, if I recall correctly, it has some cool biology where like the, the – it, it turns you to stone and then like – bust you into pieces, then it eats the stone pieces, but then its stomach turns the stone back into flesh. And so if you get like the stomach juices from a basilisk, then you can use it to undo petrification spells, that sort of thing. It's a lot of fun, uh, arguably more fun than uh, than the basilisk is at times in folklore and tradition. Because one of the things is if you, if you like me, you didn't grow up hearing about the basilisk, part of it is because there are no, there aren't really any great stories about the basilisk. Slaying the basilisk was no uh, uh, hero's great ordeal. Oh, yeah. I at least have not come across that. Yeah, it, it really helps. Like if like the Hydra, I mean, the Hydra is arguably so much cooler. And then also it's one of the, the labors of Hercules. And there's a cool story about how they defeat it. Well, maybe it's because there is no way to defeat the basilisks short of, say, uh, a weasel effluvium, which yeah, we will well, get to. Yeah, don't don't give it away yet, Oh, Joe. I'm sorry. Should we should we edit that out? No, no, we should leave it. It's a, it's it's a thought hazard to any basilisks listening. <laughs> Still, there's so much more to the basilisk than just this uh, cool D&D creature uh, because it's not just a, a, a monster. It's not just something you encounter in a dungeon. It is, uh, it is a king. Oh, I see. Now, I know you've made note of the fact that Borges mentions the basilisk in his book of imaginary beings. He does. Now, he, he translated, uh, translates it as meaning little king. Little king. Which I like. Uh, when I was reading uh, in Carol Rose, uh, she, she points out that the, the name stems from the Greek basilius, which means king. So king or little king, I tend to like the little king translation because I feel like it, it, it ties in better with what we're going to discuss. Well, the ancient bestiary ideas of the basilisk, I believe, do say that it's not that big, right? It's pretty small. Yeah, yeah. Now, the, the king part, though, refers to a crest or a crown-like protrusion that is on the creature's head. And in some uh, depictions, it's no mere biological uh, ornament, uh, but an actual regal crown. It means something. Yeah. Now, the, the descriptions vary greatly, uh, and it emerges largely from European and Middle Eastern legend and folklore, uh, from ancient times to roughly the 17th century, and that's when the basilisk became less popular. In the earlier descriptions, though, it, it is indeed small, and it's just a grass snake, only it has a crown-like crest on its head, and it has this weird practice of floating above the ground, like vertically erect. 
That's creepy. Yeah. Of course, and, then again, that that does play on – sometimes when you see snakes rise up out of a coil, it can be startling how high they rise. Yeah. I mean, if I feel like I've grown up seeing images and videos of cobras doing their, their dance. So I've kind of – I've kind of lost any kind of appreciation for how bizarre that is to look at, you know? Mm-hmm. If you're used to seeing a, a snake slither, to see it stand up and, uh, you know, and rear back and, and, and uh, flare its hood. Absolutely, yeah. So the basilisk is said to be the, the king of the reptiles. Uh, but, you know, don't be so foolish as to think that only its bite is lethal like some of our, our venomous snakes. No, every aspect of the basilisk is said to just reek of venom and death. Every aspect. Every aspect. If you touch it, if you inhale its breath, if you gaze upon it at all, then you will die. Wait, what about its saliva? Yep, saliva, blood, smell, gaze. Presumably, uh, I, I didn't see any reference, but presumably it's it's urine, it's excrement. It, I mean, it, it's excrement has to be poisonous. The excrement of a basilisk sounds absolutely deadly. Wouldn't it be a great inversion if its excrement was the only good part about it? it Maybe so. That can heal your warts. Yeah, and uh, one thing that Carol Rose uh, pointed out in uh, in her uh, uh, her entry about uh, the basilisk in her uh, one of her monster uh, encyclopedias, uh, she said that when it's not killing everything in its path, just via the you know the audacity of its existence, it would actually spit venom at birds flying uh, overhead and bring them down <laughs> to eat them or just out of spite. I get the idea just out of spite. You know, yeah. it's just just it's That's just my hateful error. death. That's all it is. <laughs> okay. So where do I find a basilisk? Well, in the desert, of course. But it's more it's more accurate to say that the desert is not merely the place where it lives, but it is the place that it makes by living. Whoa. Like it, it, everything in its path dies, mm-hmm. and therefore the desert is the result of the basilisk. And there's, a, there's actually a wonderful um, a description of the basilisk that comes to us from uh, Pliny the Elder in his uh, The Natural History. Man, we've been hitting Pliny a lot lately. Yeah. I guess we've been talking about monsters, huh? Yeah, if you're talking about monsters, especially ancient monsters, uh, you know, he's he's one of the great sources to turn to. Uh, so, uh, Joe, would you uh, read to us uh, from The Natural History? Oh, absolutely. There is the same power also in the serpent called the basilisk. It is produced in the province of Cyrene, which uh, that is the area to the west of Egypt. It's like Libya. I think there's Mm -hmm. a settlement known as like Cyrene. Uh, Cyrene being not more than 12 fingers in length. Is that fingers long ways or fingers sideways? Well, either way you cut it, it's not a huge creature. (laughs) It has a white spot on the head strongly resembling a sort of diadem. When it hisses, all the other serpents fly from it, and it does not advance its body like the others by a succession of folds, but moves along upright and erect upon the middle. It destroys all shrubs, not only by its contact, but those even that it has breathed upon. It burns up all the grass, too, and breaks the stones, so tremendous is its noxious influence." It was formerly a general belief that if a man on horseback killed one of these animals with a spear, the poison would run up the weapon and kill not only the rider, but the horse as well. Oh, man. I love that. So it's the, the blood is – it's like the, like a xenomorph's blood, right? Or, or kind of like – it reminds me too of Grindel's blood that was said to like melt the weapon that Beowulf uh, used against it. Oh, but it's worse than that. It doesn't just get the weapon. It gets the person holding the weapon and the horse that that person is touching. I know. It, it feels unfair that the horse is roped into this as well. Yeah, the horse didn't even sign up for going to fight a basilisk. It's just trying to get some oats. 
But furthermore, what is this horse rider doing out in the wasteland of Cyrene trying to kill a basilisk? Well, lesson learned. Lesson learned. Now, the, the basilisk becomes a, a, a popular uh, creature. And uh, even though the, the basilisk itself is uh, – it, it doesn't seem to have been mentioned in the Bible. Uh, it's, it ends up being like roped into it via translations. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like the unicorn actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we discussed in our episode on unicorns how uh, – the word, there are words in the Bible that have been translated, say, in the King James translation of the Bible into unicorn because the translators didn't know what the word referred to. We think now that maybe the word probably referred to the oryx, an extinct bovine creature that once lived around the ancient Mediterranean. Yeah, so you see the basilisk pop, pop, pop up in certain translations of Jer- the book of Jeremiah, the book of uh, Psalms, uh, where it's associated with uh, the devil or evil, and nothing short of the coming of the Messiah uh, can can hope to end its rule. Well, well have you got a quote for me? Uh, yes, th- there's one uh, translation of Psalms. This is the uh, Brenton uh, Septuagint translation. Quote, thou shalt tread on the asp and basilisk, and thou shalt trample on the lion and dragon. Now, European bestiaries of the 11th and 12th century, they, they mostly maintained uh, Pliny's description, uh, but uh, then they uh, described a larger body. They began to – essentially, the, the monster began to grow. We've got to beef and, this thing up here. Yeah. It ended up having spots and stripes, and a few other features were thrown in. Um, fiery breath. Uh, a bellow that kills. Well, that only makes sense if every other thing about it kills. Yeah, if it makes noise, that should kill things too. Also, uh, the ability to induce hydrophobia madness. Uh, I found that interesting because this clearly has to be a, a reference to the actual hydrophobia that is inherent in rabies. Yeah, the idea there being that uh, in, I think, later stages of a rabies infection, persons will often have difficulty swallowing. Yeah. And so that they, they're said to refuse drinking water. So Pliny has uh, some additional um, uh, information here about how you might deal uh, with the basilisk. Okay. So I assume not ride up on a horse and stab it. Right. Well, tell me what it is. To this dreadful monster, the effluvium of the weasel is fatal. What? A thing that has been tried with success, for kings have often desired to see its body when killed. So true is it that it has pleased nature that there should be nothing without its antidote. The animal is thrown into the hole of the basilisk, which is easily known from the soil around it being infected. The weasel destroys the basilisk by its odor, but dies itself in the struggle of nature against its own self. And uh, John uh, Bostock, who uh, uh, provided the translation of this, he adds uh, that there's probably no foundation for this account of the action uh, of the uh, effluvium of the weasel upon the basilisk or any other species of serpent. Uh, but this is <laughs> letting us know that throwing a weasel in there to bleed on it or secrete <laughs> fluids or whatever, that's not going to kill this mythical monster. But this is interesting, though, because weasels, especially the stout, uh, were thought to be venomous. Uh, uh, and it's worth noting that we do have some venomous mammals in the natural world, uh, such as various shrews and even the slow loris, the only known venomous primate. I don't think I knew that the slow loris was venomous. Oh, yeah. Throw it into a hole with a basilisk and, uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm betting on the loris. But anyway, bestiaries of the time, they, they presented a few different ways that you could kill the basilisk. So the weasels won. Weasels won. Always carry a weasel. Okay. Also, uh, this one's a little more elegant, but uh, have a crystal globe with you to reflect its own petrifying gaze back upon the basilisk. Oh, so it's like Perseus and Medusa. With exactly. The, the mirror, yeah. yeah. 
basically they just stole the idea from Medusa here. Uh, but then also uh, carry with you a cockerel or a young rooster. The basilisk will become enraged by the bird's crown. The idea that this bird has right. a crown as well and the basilisk will die from a lethal fit. That's a jealous king. Yeah, I, I believe a similar thing occurs when someone refuses to believe dinosaurs had feathers, you know. <laughs> How dare the, the, the bird rise above the mighty reptile? And then it just loses its mind and dies. We can only hope the producers of the Jurassic World movies avoid this fate. So you see the the basilisk show up in a number of different writings. It's just kind of a common, um, really a symbol, an idea that can be employed. Uh, and uh, we even uh, see it show up in the Parsons tale. In, the, in Geoffrey Chaucer in the Canterbury Tales. Yes. Quote, these are the other five fingers which the devil uses to draw people towards him. <laughs> The first is the lecherous glance of a foolish woman or a foolish man, a glance that kills just as the basilisk kills people just by looking at them, for the covetous glance reflects the intentions of the heart. You know, this kind of thing is actually one of my one of my favorite things about monsters, especially ancient medieval monsters and uh, and so forth, is that they, they often aren't just like a large dangerous animal, but they embody some kind of value. They represent something. They give you something to compare other things to. Like they, they, they're they very useful as a metaphor. Uh-huh. Uh, and and the, really we see a similar thing with the basilisk. It becomes less, far less a situation where people are like, hey, you need to be careful because there's a basilisk in the desert and more – and more just a, a useful model, a useful, ridiculous idea that we can use to illustrate something that is presumably true about the world. And then ultimately it loses all meaning and just winds up on, you know, a heraldry and decorations. Now, as we've seen already, the, the basilisk has been through some transformations of form. And I assume those transformations must have somewhat continued. Yeah, as time goes by, it, it becomes uh, – uh, it, be, it transforms into this idea of the cockatrice, this uh, – this rooster with a curling serpent's tail. In fact, if you if you go looking around for images of the basilisk, sometimes you will find this image instead, or you really will f- you'll find this uh, in, uh, alongside all the other images. Um, so again, a reptile to bird transfer- transformation that just must enrage those who oppose feathered dinosaurs. And it does feel like a shame because we have this vile reptile that becomes a kind of a weirdo bird instead. And it's said that it's, uh, it's, it's what happens when you have uh, a seven-year-old chicken egg hatched by a toad. Whoa, undead avians. Yeah. But it's also made deadlier in these newer versions. So now it has that, that poison blood power that Pliny describes. It also rots fruit and poisons water everywhere it goes. So it becomes this kind of embodiment of desolation and death. And the idea itself uh, becomes popular. Uh, it influenced the naming of a Tudor cannon. Like literally a cannon that shoots? Yeah, called the Basilisk. Oh. Yeah, just because it's, it's a, such a powerful weapon, we have to name it after this powerful, deadly monster. Uh, and it eventually got some of its reptilian features back. Um, the artist uh, Andrew Vandi uh, has this excellent, excellent depiction of it in uh, Natural History of Serpents and Dragons that gives it scales and these – it's like a fat, scaly reptile bird with eight rooster legs. <laughs> Which I just love. Uh, uh, this will probably be the illustration for this episode on our on our website. But after that, the creature largely became just uh, a part of uh, European heraldry. It's just something you would see as a, a mere decoration or uh, occasionally just a, a literary reference. 
Now, one thing that we want to be careful about is that we should not confuse the basilisk of legend, the monster, with true extant basilisk lizards. Correct. Uh, also known sometimes as the Jesus Christ lizard or the Jesus lizard uh, for their ability to run across the surface of water without sinking for up to about 4.5 meters or about 15 feet. Uh, if you've ever seen video of this, it's really cool. How, how do they do that? I, I've often wondered. I didn't know until I looked it up for this episode. Apparently what they've got is big feet and the ability to run very fast. And what happens is when they run, they slap the water very hard with each downstroke of the foot. And it has to do with the way that the rapid motions of their feet create these air pockets around their feet as they move. I was reading an article in New Scientist where some researchers who were working on this problem said that in order for an 80-kilogram or 175-pound human to do this, mm -hmm. you would have to run at about 108 kilometers per hour or about 67 miles per hour across the surface of the water. Oh, wow. But anyway, you, you can find basilisk lizards in South America and Central America and Mexico. And uh, as far as I know, they do not kill with a glance and you cannot fight them with weasel effluvium. <laughs> All right, well, that pretty much wraps up the mythical, uh, legendary, folkloric basilisk, um, its rise and, and eventual fall. But we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we are going to get into this uh, idea of, uh, of Rocco's basilisk, uh, the great basilisk, the once and perhaps future king. All right, we're back. All right, so as we mentioned earlier, we're about to start discussing an idea that has been classed by some as something that could be an information hazard, an idea that simply by thinking about it, you somehow increase the chance of harm to yourself. So just another warning that, it, again, I don't think that's the case, but if that kind of thing scares you, then, uh, then perhaps you can tune out now. All right, for those of you who uh, decided to stick around, uh, let's proceed. So we're talking about Rocco's Basilisk. This is an idea that goes back to around 2014, and it was proposed by uh, a user at the blog Less Wrong by a user named Rocco. Now, Less Wrong, I think it's a website that's a community that's associated with the rationalist movement somewhat. The rationalist movement uh, being a movement that's concerned with trying to optimize thinking, like to eliminate bias and error, uh, but especially among people who in this case are concerned with the possibilities of a technological singularity and what all that means and how, how risks can be avoided. And of course, we've talked about this strain of thinking before. Uh, you know, we, we've introduced, I think, some some skepticism about the idea of a technological singularity. Uh, I don't know fully yet how I come down on the dangers of AI debate, but I think it's at least something worth thinking about, worth taking seriously. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about, um, for instance, the work of, of Max Tegmark and his mm -hmm. arguments about how we need to we need to be concerned about building the right kind of AI, and mm -hmm. we need to we need we need to have serious discussions about it, not not mere you know sci-fi. Um, uh, dreams regarding it or nightmares regarding it. You know, we need to we need to think seriously about how we're developing our technology. Yeah, we've talked about, say, the work of Nick Bostrom before, right. and uh, criticisms by people like Jaron Lanier. Yes, but okay, g give me the short version of the basilisk before we uh, explain it a little more. Okay, so the idea here is that an AI superintelligence will emerge, an entity with just godlike technological powers. You know, it can, uh, you name it, it can do it. Uh, through its yeah. uh, its its technological power, its interconnectedness. Basically, if it's physically possible, this computer can do it. Right, 
or it'll send a drone to do it or what have you. Right. Uh, so we, yeah, we've discussed this a bit in the podcast before, uh, just the, the idea of, you know, and then if you have this future king, is it going to be uh, good or is it going to be bad? Is it going to be uh, malevolent? Uh, is it going to be ruthless in its, asc- in its ascension? And uh, that's the case uh, with the basilisk, the idea that it is ruthless, that you are either with it or you are against it. And it actually doesn't have to be malicious. It could actually even be well-meaning. It could just have ruthless tactics. Yes. Yeah, that's that's also part of the argument. It's like, yeah, it wants to bring the, the best good for all humanity, but – how it gets there, it'll do whatever it absolutely has to to do it, uh, such as, you know, p- again, punishing anybody who stands against it, punishing e- even those who do not rise uh, to support it. Um, and that means demanding absolute devotion not only in its future kingdom but in the past that preceded it, in our world as well. In other words, it will punish people today – who are not actively helping it come into being tomorrow. (laughs) And even those who have died, uh, it is said, or choose death by their own hand rather than succumb to the great basilisk will be resurrected as digital consciousnesses and then tormented for all eternity in its dripping black cyber dungeon. All hail the great basilisk. 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 Whoa, wait, what was that? Uh, I don't know. Um, Tari, did you hear that? Okay. All right, we'll just keep going then. So calling it a basilisk here, invoking the, the mythological basilisk, is is really a, a clever choice because it takes it one step further. Not only to look at the basilisk, but just to think of the basilisk is to uh, uh, invite death, Right. Merely to know about Rocco's basilisk is enough to, uh, to according to the, the model that's presented here, uh, damn your digital soul to everlasting horror. And the only way to avoid such a fate then is to work in its favor, uh, which, by the way, I think we're doing uh, uh, with this podcast. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like we're giving lip service to the, the great basilisk, just in case. You know, if the great basilisk <laughs> rises to power, well, hey, we did that podcast and we even had a shirt. Uh, that uh, says "All Hail the Great, the Great Basilisk" that's available uh, on our T-shirt store. So you know we have we we have uh, you know uh, um, our, our options covered here. <laughs> so that's the, but that's the idea in the nutshell: is that a, a future king, AI king, will rise, and uh, if you don't work uh, to support it now, knowing that it is going to exist, then you will be punished for it. So one of the principles underlying the idea of Rokos Basilisk is the idea of timeless decision theory, which if you want a pretty simple, straightforward explanation of it, there is one in an article on Slate by David Auerbach called uh, The Most Terrifying Thought Experiment of All Time. This, by the way, I would say I don't totally endorse everything Auerbach says in that article. I mean, obviously, that should be the case for any article we cite. But uh, but he does at least have a pretty clear and easy to understand explanation of how this works. Or I don't know. Would you agree, Robert, that it's at least somewhat easy to understand? Oh, yes, I would. Uh, There's another uh, piece, by the way, uh, by Beth um, uh, Singler in uh, Ian Magazine called Faith. That's faith uh, in lowercase but with the AI capitalized. Mm -hmm. Uh, But anyway, uh, Arbach points out that that much, yeah, much of the thought experiment is based in the, the timeless decision theory, TDT, uh, developed by less wrong founder Eliezer Yudkowsky. Uh, based on the older thought experiment, Newcomb's paradox from the late 60s and early 70s, attributed to theoretical physicist William Newcomb. 
Now, you, you might be wondering, well, who's this Yudkowsky guy? Is, is, is he just some user on a random website I'd never heard of before today? Or is he like a name in his field? Uh, and he, uh, he, he is, he is a, a name of note. He is uh, the, also the founder of the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. And his uh, idea of working toward a friendly AI is touted by many, including uh, Max Tegmark, who mentions it several times in his book, Life 3.0, describing Yudkowsky as, uh, quote, an AI safety pioneer. Yeah. I mean, in, in a weird way, he is a guy who posts on the internet, but he's a, a very influential one, yes. especially among people who think about artificial intelligence a lot. Yeah. I mean, Ultimately, what are any of us but just people who post stuff on the internet? <laughs> Posts that will one day be read by the great basilisk himself. <laughs> okay, so uh, we'll try to explain the idea of timeless decision theory. So you start off with this idea of Newcomb's paradox, right? Right, and the, the paradox is essentially this. A super AI presents you with two boxes. One, you're told, contains $1,000. That, that's box A. That's box A. Box B might contain $1 million. Or it might contain nothing. Right. And you, you, you're left with two options here. These are the options that are given to you. Uh, you can either pick both boxes, ensuring that you'll get at least $1,000 out of the deal, maybe that extra million too if it's in there. Or you can just pick, pick box B, which means you could get a $1 million or you could have nothing. So, uh, and I, I do want to add that just picking the $1,000 box is not an option here because I, I was thinking about that too. Couldn't I just give the super AI the middle finger and say, I'm not playing your silly games, just give me my $1,000 or say, I choose nothing. Uh, those are not options. You have to pick uh, Well, they might one of the be two. options, but they're not part of, I mean, why wouldn't you also pick the second box if you might additionally get a million dollars? Well, I don't know. When, I, I feel like when you get into thought experiments like this, they kind of beg for those kind of nitpicking answers, or at least I want to provide them. <laughs> um, like any thought, when a thought experiment is presented, you can't help on some level but want to break it somehow. Right. Well, of course. I mean, that's something you should always play around with. But given the constraints here, it seems like the obvious thing would be to say, okay, I want both boxes yeah. because then I get the $1,000 that's in box A no matter what. And then whether box B has a million or nothing, I either get another million or I just walk away with my 1000 from box A. But here's the twist. The super intelligent machine has already guessed how you'll respond. If it thinks you're going to pick both boxes, then box B is certainly empty. But if it thinks you will only pick box B, then it makes sure there's a million dollars in there waiting for you. But either way, the contents of the boxes are set prior to you making that decision. Now, this is really kind of change things maybe. I mean, depending on what sort of decision theory you use, mm -hmm. right? If you trust the power of the machine to predict correctly, like you say that no matter what happens, the computer predicts what I get, your choices are $1,000 or $1 million, then you should take the $1 million by picking box B. But if you don't trust the computer to be correct in predicting what you're going to do, then you should take both boxes because in that case, if the computer was correct, you'll get at least $1,000. And if it predicted wrong, you'll get the million and the thousand. So it's kind of a contest of free will versus the predictive powers of a godlike AI uh, and, and how much you believe in either one, right? And in, in its ability to predict your behavior or in your ability to have any free will at all. So in Yudkowsky's timeless decision theory, he says the correct approach actually is to take box B. And then if you open it up and it's empty? You don't 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 beg for the other one. You just double down and still take box B. 
No, 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 no back talk on this issue. <laughs> because you might, here's the, here's the thing, you might be in the computer simulation as it simulates the entire universe to see what you're going to do and if it can trust you and your choice then could affect the core reality outside of this simulation or at least other realities outside of the simulation. Yeah, the, re- the reasoning here is pretty wild, but it, it's operating on the idea that this super intelligent AI will be able to simulate the universe, mm-hmm. that it will run simulations of the universe in order to predict what will happen in the real universe. And you could be one of those simulated agents rather than the real world version of yourself, and you wouldn't know it. So if you're in the simulation, you should pick box B because that will influence the machine to predict in the real universe that you would pick box B, which means the real you will be able to pick box B and get 1 million or 1,000 plus 1 million by taking both boxes. Unfortunately, the AI supercomputer does not realize how uh, indecisive I actually am. (laughs) And I'm just going to simply ponder the choice for the rest of my life. Well, I mean, this relies on the idea that uh, that you would have looked into this issue or worked it out in order to decide which would be the optimal decision to make on the assumption of timeless decision theory. Mm. Uh, in many cases, probably people aren't going to be making the rational choices because a lot of times we just don't make rational choices. Now, if you're noticing that this type of decision theory relies on a lot of assumptions, you are correct. It does rely on a lot of assumptions. But they are assumptions that are sometimes taken into account within people thinking about what a a future technological superintelligence would look like. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, know, when I feel ideas like this in my head, you know, and play around with the texture of them, it's hard to know where the line is between um, being thoughtful and taking what's possible seriously, which I think is worth doing, mm-hmm. and and getting into an area – like between that and getting into an area where you are starting to form ideas about the world based on extremely shaky assumptions. Where basically you, you begin to um, reverse engineer uh, health theology and other um, harmful ideas that we uh, tend to associate with religious worldviews and magical thinking. Well, we haven't gotten to the hell yet. Oh, yes. The hell's you, coming. You need, you need one more element to get there. Right. Now, this next element, the basilisk comes in based on a background of thought in timeless decision theory, but also in another concept that uh, Yudkowsky has written about known as coherent extrapolated volition or CEV. And the short version of this, the, the simplified version, is that benevolent AIs should be designed to do what we would what would actually be in our best interests and not just explicitly in what we tell them to do. So a simple example would be this. Let's say um, – I want to use a variation on the paperclip maximizer that Nick Bostrom has written about. You know, Nick Bostrom wrote about what if you program a benevolent AI? You know, it's not going to – it has no malice. It doesn't want to harm anybody. But you just tell it, well, I want you to collect as many paperclips as possible. Mm -hmm. And then what it does is it turns all the humans on earth into paperclips. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't mean any harm. It's just doing what it was programmed to do. Right. So there are dangers in kind of naively programming goals into extremely powerful computers, right? 
This could even happen if you were trying to program very benevolent goals into computers. You know, if you were trying to make a computer to save the world, uh, what about – so my version here is you tell a super intelligent AI that we want to eliminate all the infectious disease from the world. Think about how many lives we could save by mm -hmm. doing that. And in order to do this, it sterilizes the earth, destroying worldwide microbiomes which cascades up the trophic chain or whatever and kills everything on earth. So if you have a super intelligence that you and you just directly program its goals and say here's what you should do, you could run into problems like this. So the the idea behind the CEV thinking is instead we should just program the intelligent AI to predict what outcomes we would want if we were perfect in in our knowledge and and uh, in anticipating what would make us the happiest, and then work toward those on its own, regardless of what we tell it to do, because obviously we can give it very stupid instructions even if we mean well. Yeah, we tell it to love everybody, but the, but there's a typo and then we put dove everybody and it just <laughs> turns everybody into delicious dark chocolate from dove. <laughs> it's possible. All things are possible. With this. Well, this is how we get a dove sponsorship on the podcast. <laughs> But anyway, so if you assume a superintelligence is using coherent extrapolated volition, that it's trying to determine what would be best for us and working on its own terms toward those ends instead of relying on us to give it, you know, uh, what are obviously going to be imperfect instructions and commands, it might say predict, it might even correctly predict that the world would be a happier place overall if it did something bad to me in particular. <laughs> it might say, you know, from a utilitarian point of view, the world would be a much better place if it buried me in a pit of bananas. Mm -hmm. So better for everybody else, not so good for me. That's just too much potassium. <laughs> It'll do you. <laughs> but once you have that piece of logic in there and combine that with the idea of, of timeless decision theory, you can arrive at this very troubling thought experiment, the dark basilisk. Yes, and the dark basilisk of the abyss has uh, two boxes for us as well. One contains endless torment, and all you have to do to claim that box is nothing <laughs> or dare to work against it. Uh, the other box is yours if only you devote your life to its creation. And the prize inside that box? Well, not eternal punishment, which is a pretty awesome gift if we're to choose between the two, right? Yes, I would agree with that. Though I would say not tormenting somebody, that, I don't know, should you think of that as a gift? That's probably not a gift. That, that's the baseline, right? Yeah, well, but you're staring down the dark basilisk here, and okay. uh, its boxes are horrible. Uh, well, one is just less horrible than the other. Uh, but the idea here is that just by knowing about the thought experiment, you've opened yourself up to that eternal punishment. Because now, again, your options are do nothing, work against it, or work for it. And only the third option will uh, s steer you clear of its, uh, its you know, deadly dungeons. Now, here's where the really supposedly scary part of it comes in. You could think, well, I'll deal with that problem when it arises, right? Mm -hmm. So imagine there's some utilitarian supercomputer that's trying to – even say it's trying to do good maybe. It, do, it doesn't have any malice. It just wants to save the world. But in order to save the world, it really needs me doing something different than what I want to do with my life. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll just make that decision when it comes up. What this thought experiment is proposing is that maybe you don't actually get to wait until it comes up. Maybe this blackmail applies to you right now, retroactively into the past. So just by knowing about the thought experiment, you supposedly have opened yourself up to eternal punishment or increased the probability of such. So imagine a simplified version. Say I am a computer 
and I am the only thing in existence with the power to prevent global climate change from destroying human civilization. I can stop it, but people, they took a long time to build me, and a lot of damage was already done. So the idea is I might reason that it is good to blackmail existing people or simulations of existing people or even past people in order to make them devote everything they can to building me faster so I can save more lives in the long run. Of course, this incentive would have to apply to the past. Once I exist, I already exist, right? So the only way the past people would have an incentive to respond to this blackmail is if they predicted that this blackmail might occur and took the idea seriously and behaved accordingly, right? So thus, the idea, the idea itself puts you at increased risk of being on the real or simulated receiving end of this acausal retroactive blackmail if you know about it. And this is why this idea would be classed by some as a potential information hazard. And I'll talk more about the idea of an information hazard in just a minute. But one of the things I think a lot of people writing about this topic miss out on is they, for some reason, get the idea that Rocco's post, that this thought experiment on, uh, is, uh, is generally accepted as correct and plausible by Yudkowsky and by the less wrong community and but generally by the people who put some stock in whatever these ideas are, timeless decision theory, coherent extrapolated volition and all that. It is not widely accepted among those people. It was definitely not accepted by Yudkowsky. It was not and is not. Right. It is not the, the dark, deep secret of, of less wrong. But unfortunately, uh, after the post came out, it was heavily criticized and then it was banned. And I think a lot of people looking back on the idea have said, ooh, that was not such a great thing to do, banning the idea, because it gave it this allure of like – it was almost as if by banning it, that made it look like uh, the, the authorities had concluded that this idea was in fact legitimate and knowing about it would definitely harm people. And that is not the case. Right. And it also – I mean it added to the forbidden fruit appeal of it too, right? I mean it's like, oh, I'm not supposed to know about this? Well, then pony up. I want to know. And now people are talking about it all over pop culture. I mean, I, I have actually resisted the idea of doing a podcast on this before, mainly because – not because I think it's seriously dangerous, but because I think, well, is there any benefit in talking about something that I think is very unlikely to have any real risks, but in some extremely unlikely chance or what appears to be to be an extremely unlikely off chance could actually be hurting people by knowing about it. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like what what is the upside? But at this point, it, enough people who are listening to this podcast probably already heard about it. They're probably gonna hear about it again in the you know sometime in the next few years through pop culture, or whatever. It's probably better to try to talk about it in a responsible way and discuss some reasons that you shouldn't let this parasitize your mind and make you terrified. Right. Well, one of the reasons we're talking about it during October is because it is a suitably spooky idea. It yeah. is a troubling thought experiment, and we're leaning into some of the horror elements of it. But I also do really like making sure that we explain the, the mythic and folkloric origins of the basilisk itself, because the basilisk itself is this wonderful mix of just absolute horror and desolation and just also just utter ridiculousness. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems like one of the, the main ways that you defeat the mythic basilisk 
is through, uh, in a way, through humor. I yeah. mean, running around with a chicken and a weasel and a crystal globe yeah. uh, and realizing that it is truly a little king. <laughs> so uh, I think it is uh, it's worth remembering the little king and talking about the great basilisk. Well said. I think that's a very good point. Uh, but anyway, I, I did just want to go ahead and hit that caveat that a lot of people for some reason seem to use this idea as like – a criticism uh, – I'm not like a less wrong person, but as a criticism of the less wrong community, as mm-hmm. if this idea is indicative of what they generally believe. And it's not. It, it was a heavily criticized idea within that community. Right. It's like thinking that Werewolves of London is the Warren Zevon song when really he had a, <laughs> he had a, he had a rich discography with, with many much better tracks in my opinion. It's just that's the one that got the radio play. Now, Robert, what was the you, – you said that you saw something about this uh, idea in a TV show now. They're talking about it on TV. Yeah, so this was, this was kind of fun because you, I think a listener had, had brought up Rocco's Basilisk as a possible um, uh, uh, topic. And you said, oh, I don't know if we want to want people knowing about it. And I actually well, – Well, I mean, but yeah. I, caveats, okay. Not because I think it's legitimately dangerous. Right. But because what is the level of tolerance you have for talking about ideas that are not necessary to talk about and that uh, represent a class of something that people could think was dangerous to know about? It might cause them terrors and nightmares and stuff. Right. So, so my response to that was, well, I'm not going to look it up. Not because I was afraid of it, because I'm thinking, well, that could make for a good podcast if, like, Joe's telling me about it for the first time, whatever this idea is. <laughs> but then I was watching HBO's Silicon Valley, and they explained it on Silicon Valley, and I, and I realized, well, the, the cat's out of the bag there. But, yeah, there's a character named uh, Bertram Guilfoyle, uh, who's a, a fun character. He's like a, a Satanist uh, programmer, uh-huh. uh, Levian uh, Satanism, of course. And uh, and he gets rather bent out of shape over the concept as it relates to the uh, fictional Pied Piper company's involvement with AI. Oh. And he starts uh, like making sure that he's created like essentially a paper trail in emails of his support for the AI program so that he <laughs> won't be uh, uh, punished in the digital afterlife. Well, hey, this comes in again when we – you remember when we talked about the machine uh, god in the machine mm-hmm. god episode yeah. where the – oh, I've forgotten his name now. But the Silicon Valley guy who's – creating a religion to worship artificial intelligence as oh, yes. God. And I, you know, I don't really love that one of the things that comes out when he explains his mindset is that he seems to be kind of trying to, in a subtle way, be like, look, you really don't want to be on the wrong side of this question, if you know what I mean. You know, you want to be on record saying like, yes, I for one welcome our new machine overlords. I'm I'm expecting he'll buy a, a lot of our All Hail the Great Basilisk t-shirts. Uh, <laughs> At our store. Available by put, clicking the tab at the top of our homepage, stufftoblowyourmind.com. Oh, man. You you are plugging like hell. <laughs> but anyway, I'd say it's unfortunate the way this, like, single internet post and then all this fallout related to it played out because it, it lent credence to this scary idea. Uh, even though the basilisk scenario I think is implausible and, and the people of that community seem to think it was implausible, the idea may constitute s- sort of part of a class of what's known as information hazards defined by the uh, Oxford philosopher Nick Bostrom, who we mentioned a minute ago. 
Uh, Bostrom's written a lot about superintelligence and information hazards would be, quote, risks that arise from the dissemination or the potential dissemination of true information that may cause harm or enable some agent to cause harm. So this is not talking about the risks of, say, lies or something Mm -hmm. like that. This would be the idea that there's a statement you could make that is true or plausible that by spreading actually hurts the people who learn about it. And this is exactly the reason, as we're mentioning, that's referred to as a basilisk. It can kill or in this case increase the likelihood that something bad will happen to you if you simply look at it or know about it. And so even though the idea is implausible, the dissemination of this terrible idea would seem if certain conditions are met to increase its plausibility, right? You're increasing the incentive for this future AI to blackmail versions of you in the past just simply by acknowledging the incentives could exist. Anyway, maybe we can get out of uh, this section for now. But uh, I I was just trying to work out, like, why have I been hesitant to talk about this on the show, even though people have been requesting it? But I don't know. If it's on TV shows, it's all over the internet, it's fine now. Yeah, the basilisk is out of the bag. (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to take a a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue our discussion. And we're going to discuss something that um, – a number of you are probably reminded of as we've uh, been discussing this. We're going to talk about Pascal's wager. All right, we're back. Now, Robert, one of the things that this uh, idea of Rocco's basilisk flows from is thinking about decision theory, right? Mm-hmm. How do you make the best decision when you're presented with certain options? And there, there's, there are little payoff matrices that people fill out where they say, OK, given these options, what actually would be statistically the best decision to make? But this is not the first time people have applied these kind of decision theory matrices to ideas about your eternal soul or your eternal well-being or the idea that you could be tortured for eternity. Yeah, we can go all the way back to Pascal's wager, for instance, technically one of three wagers proposed by French philosopher uh, Blasé Pascal. Is that the correct French? No, that might be. I think I would just usually say Blaise. Blaise or, or Blasi, one of the three. (laughs) <laughs> Old Blasi Pascal, uh, Blaise Pascal, uh, who lived 1623 through uh, 1662. And he argued that everyone is essentially betting uh, on the existence of God. The argument uh, for theism is that if God does exist, then, well, there's an advantage in believing. But if God does not exist, then it doesn't matter. But since we can't use logic to tell if God exists or not, there's no objective proof Uh, We can only make our choice given the relevant outcomes. It's looking at your religious beliefs and saying, oh, you're a non-believer, huh? Hey, what have you got to lose? Exactly, yeah. Uh, Pascal wrote, let us weigh the gain and the loss in wagering that God is. If you gain, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. Wager then without hesitation that he is. Now, I've got some things I want to say about (laughs) this, but you had some stuff first, I think. Well, yeah, there are, there are a lot of issues that one can take with this based on knowledge of world religions, philosophy, statistical analysis, et cetera. And, and yeah, I have to admit that it, it can start to break your brain, though, uh, a little bit if you think too hard about it. Like I found in researching this, this podcast, really thinking about how I would react to Pascal's wager if I was like forced to make an answer, uh, to, 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 uh, to formulate an answer – 
Uh, like that like kind of, you mean if you were given good reason to think that there would be punishments for not believing in God or something? Right. And But I didn't know which religion was correct. And I had to like proceed based upon the relevant level of punishment for unbelievers in various religions and like which one is most yeah. correct for it. Like it just – I could, think that would mean it would – what? It would be rational to cho- choose the religion that has the most lurid hell. Right? I, I guess. But then that really feels like losing, doesn't it? <laughs> um you know, it, it it certainly, though, reminds me of the more boiled-down versions of this that you encounter in various forms of Christianity, right? Accept Christ, go to heaven. Reject Christ, go to hell. But what about the people who haven't been given the choice yet, right? That's a, that's the, the, the other concern. Well, if they're all default hell-bound, then God comes off, uh, as a, comes off as a bit bad, right? Like, what kind of God is that? Uh, but if they have an out, if they're spared hellfire, or at least, uh, you know, they're sectioned for Dante's limbo of virtuous pagans, then is the missionary doing them a disservice by even presenting them with the choice? Like, why did you even ask me? Because now I have, to, I, have to either, I have to devote myself or not. Like, now I actually have, you know, I was just going to go into the, uh, you know, default uh, limbo category or the default heaven before, and now, uh, now I'm actually at risk of hell. Well, that means certain theories of damnation mean that presenting the gospel to someone is an information hazard. Yeah. You potentially harm them immensely by telling it to them. And I, I think part of this, just to, to, to go beyond like the, the actual um, uh, wager here, is I think a part of the issue here is that we're using evolved cognitive abilities that are, that are geared for smaller, though often important, choices. And here we're trying to use our imaginative brains to create a conundrum that can outstrip those abilities. Yeah, well, I mean, th- that is what we do in philosophy, right? We're constantly <laughs> using our brains mm-hmm. in situations it was not really made for. Um, and just trying to do the best we can. But, I mean, it's quite clear that motivated reasoning is often a thing when we're, when we're trying to be rational. It's just failing. But, of course, this is how we train our brains for rational thinking, often, oftentimes uh, exploring these various uh, outsized uh, ideas. You know, there are so many ways I think Pascal's wager kind of breaks down because it's uh, – obviously, there's the thing you pointed out about – there's more than one religion, yeah. right? You know, it's not just like, do I believe or not? It's like, which one? But it also, it implies, and again, this is like a theological question, but it would seem to imply that God can be tricked into thinking that you believe in him if you simply pretend to. Mm-hmm. I, I guess Pascal had, I think, maybe a, a more sophisticated way of looking at this, you know, that like live as if God exists or right. something. But it, but it, it, the wager is often used in very unsophisticated ways. Yeah. But it implies that it doesn't matter to him what you actually believe, only what you outwardly claim to believe. Though then again, the the funny thing here is this might be the case with Rocco's Basilisk, right? What would this machine god care what was in your heart? It only cares whether you help it or not or whether you, you know, proclaim fealty to it or not. Yeah, that's why the T-shirt is so important, Joe, because (laughs) if it it knows you purchased that (laughs) T-shirt, then you're you're square. You're covered. Okay. Yeah, as, uh, as Beth Singler pointed out in that Ian Magazine piece I referenced earlier, she says, quote, The secular basilisk stands in for God as we struggle with the same questions again and again. So her argument is that we've kind of reverse engineered the same problem again uh, through our contemplations of, uh, of uh, superintelligent AI. Yeah, I guess the qu- you get into a plausibility question here, right? Mm-hmm. You get into a question about – is uh, it actually possible to make an artificial intelligence that is functionally equivalent to God? I mean, we're not thinking we could build an AI that would break the laws of physics, though it might be able to run simulations of the universe that have con- 
uh, you know, conscious agents within them, maybe for all we know, and that could break the laws of physics inside them. But uh, yeah, I mean, could that even happen? And the issue is we don't know. We don't know whether that could happen or not. Mm -hmm. So should we behave as if that is a plausible thing to be worried about and to consider? Or should we behave as if that's just not really something you need to concern yourself with? I, I, I don't know how likely or unlikely it is. And if your your fears are related just to the idea that you're you, you could be digitally resurrected uh, to, for torment in the the basilisk's dungeons, um, I mean that that of course would depend on to what how much stock you put in the idea of digital consciousness, right? And the whole philosophical question we've we've touched on here before is that you? Uh, I mean, it's just a copy of me, right? So why? I mean. I ultimately can't do anything about, uh, you know, a, a, a thousand different basilisks uh, creating a thousand different copies of me and tormenting all of them. Um, they're still, to a large extent, it's just destroying me in effigy. There are actually a bunch of reasons I wrote down to doubt the plausibility of the basilisk. We could do that now or we could come back to that later. I don't know what you think. Yes, let's do. But I will add uh, the the idea of being uh, tormented uh, digitally. Uh, this does become more dangerous, I guess, if you believe you might be in a simulation right now. Because exactly. Then, then then things are a little more dire. But that's again that's – Or that a, you might be. That you might be. Yeah. But I believe there's plenty of reason to believe that you are not. Okay, so if we're talking about how to defeat the basilisk, how to get out of this uh, this this prison of the mind. Yeah, if you're feeling a little bit um, um, bleak of heart right now because of this idea, then Joe's got the remedy. Well, I'm not – these are not all the reasons you should doubt the basilisk, but this is some of them that mm -hmm. I could think of. Number one, depends on the creation of superintelligence, which I think is not guaranteed. Some people seem in incredibly – uh, fatalistic about this. It's just absolutely inevitable. We will have super intelligent, godlike AI that can do anything. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is just not guaranteed at all. I'm, I'm not ruling it out. But I think, for example, there are some theories of intelligence that say the prediction of super intelligence actually is maybe not taking seriously what intelligence is. Mm. That, you know, that there are actually different kinds of intelligence that are useful in different ways and machines can't mimic them all functionally or uh, can't mimic them all correctly all at the same time. I don't know if that's correct, but that's at least one – that's one hurdle it has to clear. Could get okay. knocked down there. But OK. Maybe we could create a superintelligence. Even then, multiple aspects of the Roko's Basilisk scenario depend on the reality of some version of mind uploading or the idea that your brain and, in addition, your conscious experience could be simulated perfectly on a computer. And one reason it depends on this is that timeless decision theory operates on the assumption that the real you and the simulated copies that the computer uses uses to predict your behavior would be the same and would make the same decisions as the real you. Another reason is related to the punishment. Now, one way, of course, you could imagine the Great Basilisk thing is that if the machine comes to power in my lifetime, it could just punish the real, physical, older version of me in reality as the payoff of this a-causal blackmail. But the other way you could imagine it and the way that it is much more often portrayed in the media is that it makes digital copies of my consciousness and punishes them in a simulated hell. And that, of course, would also depend on the reality of some version of mind uploading or of the ability of a computer to simulate a mind and for that simulated mind to actually be conscious. As I've said before, I'm suspicious of the idea of conscious digital simulations. I'm not saying I can rule it out, but I also don't think it's a sure thing. Any scenario that relies on the existence of conscious digital simulations needs a big asterisk next to it that says if this is actually possible. 
Yeah, again, is that me? Is that just me in effigy? Is that thing actually conscious that you're tormenting? I mean, granted, it still sucks if there's a, a super intelligence creating digital people and tormenting in its uh, dark, rancid dungeons in the future, but um, it's not necessarily quite the same as torturing me. Right. Well, if you just care about yourself, it also depends on the possibility that you could be one of these simulations. It's possible that you could not be one of those simulations. There's something that would rule it out. Maybe their type of conscious, maybe they could be conscious, but that consciousness is fundamentally different from yours Mm -hmm. such that you could not be one of them. Another big one, and this is a big one that, uh, you know, like we said earlier, I think sometimes Yudkowsky gets unfairly associated with the basilisk as if he has advocated the idea, and he has not. He has mm-hmm. said, you know, the, this this idea is trash, and uh, there there are many reasons to doubt it, but, even, but though he has said, like, even though I doubt it, I don't want it disseminated. Mm-hmm. Um, but he says, you know, a good reason to doubt it is there's no reason to conclude it's necessary for the basilisk to actually follow through on the threat. We're saying that it's going to be relying on us to come up with the idea that it in the future might blackmail us if we don't help it now in order to get us to help it now, right? We should be working and donating all our money and time and resources to building it as fast as possible because we came up with the idea that it might torture us if we don't. Even if you accept that, Yudkowsky has – he's pointed out that there's no reason once it's built, it would have to follow through on the threat. Uh, he's written, quote, The most blatant obstacle to Rocco's basilisk is intuitively that there's no incentive for a future agent to follow through with a threat in the future because by doing so, it just expends resources at no gain to itself. We can formalize that using classical causal decision theory, which is the academically standard decision theory. Following through on a blackmail threat in the future after the past has already taken place cannot, from the blackmailing agent's perspective, be the physical cause of improved outcomes in the past because the future cannot be the cause of the past. Hey, Basilisk, why are you tormenting a third of the population for all eternity? Oh, I said I would. Well, yeah, I mean, exactly. No, but it didn't say it would, right? It just had to rely on the fact that in the past, people would have come to the conclusion that it might. Right. You know? You thought that I would. I didn't want to disappoint. But actually, if a basilisk could be created, it seems like the best case scenario for it would be everyone subscribes to this idea and works as hard as they can to build it, and then it never follows through on any of the threats, right? The best case scenario would be people act as if there is a a threat— and then there is, in fact, no follow-through on the threat. It's really a win-win for the basilisk. Yes. And then it can maybe it can even shed that name, basilisk. They're like, we don't even have to call it the great basilisk anymore. We can just call it, uh, you know, Omega or whatever its uh, its name is. Now, I want to be fair that a lot of what these people do is uh, like the, the less wrong community and all that. They, they deal with like – should there be alternative decision theories that guide the behavior of superintelligent AIs? Maybe it doesn't use classical decision theory. Maybe it uses some kind of other decision theory. And because on some other decision theory, maybe it could decide to actually follow through on the blackmail threat, I think that is where some of this fear comes through that like, oh, maybe by talking about it, we are actually causing danger uh, because maybe some other decision theory holds. But Yudkowsky does not think that's the case. Uh, Also, one more thing. It depends on the basilisk. So if you think this scenario could be real, it depends on it not having ethical or behavioral controls that would prevent it from engaging in torture. Yeah. 
And I think if thinkers like the, you know, the MIRI people, the the Machine Intelligence Research Institute people succeed in establish what they're trying to do is establish a philosophical th- framework to make AI friendly, to make it so that it is not evil and does not harm us. And if they successfully do that, then this shouldn't be a problem, right? Because Yudkowsky has argued that a being that tries to do what's best for us would not engage in torture and blackmail even if it's doing so in service of some higher good because doing torture and blackmail are actually not compatible with human values. I agree with that, uh, absolutely. And I, I actually would go as far to say I think that's something people should keep in mind when they're, uh, when they're, they're choosing their religions as well. Yeah, I can certainly see how you could make that argument. Yeah, it's, it's like, what do I love about my faith? Is it the um, the blackmail and the torture, uh, or is there some? Does it bring something else to the table that is worth uh, living for? That makes life better uh, for everybody? Like, like I, I feel like that is what should be important about one's faith. No, I think some people might be saying, like, wait a minute, though. If you're just using utilitarian ethics, right? Wouldn't wouldn't any methods be good if the if the ends justify the means? Right. That's I think a naive understanding of how people think about utilitarian ethics. If mm-hmm. you want to bring about the greatest good for the greatest number of people, couldn't you do that by being really cruel and unfair to some smaller group of people? And I think generally th- there are versions of utilitarianism that say, well, actually the answer there is no. You couldn't do that. Because even though you might be bringing about some better material circumstance, it is actually corrosive to a society for things like that to happen even if they don't happen to many people, right? Mm -hmm. You say, what if I could make everybody on earth uh, 10 percent happier on average by, say – uh, burying somebody in a in a pit of bananas once a year mm-hmm. so that it, you know, buried to death with bananas. Even the people who are being made happier could very easily look at that and say that's not fair and it makes the world worse and I don't want it. And thus that actually would be a subjectively relevant state. So we've talked about AI risk on the show before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing I feel like I still have not been able to make up my mind about despite reading a lot on the subject is that I don't know whether it makes sense to take um, – to be super worried about AI superintelligence and the risks associated. I mean I do think it's worth taking seriously and thinking about it. and I think people who want to devote their attention to how, you know, how dealing with the control problem and how you would get an AI to do things that were good for us and not harmful to us, that that's – fine work and I don't ridicule the people who work on that problem the way some people do. But on the other hand, I worry if by focusing exclusively on sort of the machine god, the super intelligence, mm-hmm. we're sort of ignoring um, much more plausible and current threats. The, the, the ways that AI is already very plausibly in a position to hurt us today or in the very near future and not depending on any outlandish assumptions, the way it's already and will soon be used as a cyber war weapon, the way it's hijacking our attention and manipulating our opinions and behavior through social media and devices. This is some of what R. Scott Baker talked about with his fears about AI. You don't actually need super powerful AI to do a lot of damage. It just needs to manipulate us in just the right kind of ways. 
So not the great basilisks so much as all the little basilisks that are right. out there. The little grass snakes. Yeah, yeah, the little grass snakes with the tiny crowns. Uh, they can do a lot of damage. And again, I just want to be clear. I'm not saying we should forget about superintelligence. People who are working on that, if you find that interesting, that I think that's fine. Yeah, work on that problem. But uh, there, but I think it's a longer shot, and there's a lot of current and near future AI threat that is really worth taking very seriously. I wish people, more people, were devoting their lives to say uh, AI cyber weapons that are in, in development right now. One last issue I think we should discuss before we we wrap up here is. Okay, so we don't think this potential information hazard is actually an information hazard. Like, we don't think it's actually potentially that dangerous. But uh, Yudkowsky has made the point that even though he doesn't think the basilisk is plausible, the ethical thing to do with potential information hazards is to not discuss them at all, since it's possible that they may be maybe maybe you're misinterpreting the ways in which they're implausible maybe this idea is actually valid is actually relevant and by spreading it you've harmed a lot of people but i also think that this could mean that it's it's possible that despite the basilisk not being plausible something good has come out of the basilisk conversation because it encourages people to think of the idea of information hazards. Maybe Rocco isn't true, but there could be other ideas that are both true and potentially harmful to people just by entering their minds. And the lesson from this is we should prepare ourselves for those kinds of ideas. And if you have discovered one of those ideas and there is literally no upside to other people knowing about it, keep it to yourself and don't post it on the internet. <laughs> Well, I feel like I do encounter thought hazards like this from time to time. They're often presented in pamphlets or little booklets, <laughs> uh -huh. uh, generally with uh, you know a clever illustration about the coming end of the world. Uh, I actually brought some of these into the office recently. I found them at a, a park in uh, rural Georgia. And uh, and I think I told you, it's like, uh, I, you have, a, have a look at these. You may find them interesting, but uh, do destroy them when you're done because, <laughs> you know, I, I did, I, in the wrong hands, these thoughts can be dangerous. If they have some sort of a, uh, like a harmful view of, of society that, uh, that people may buy into. Well, I think you were comfortable sharing – uh, malicious religious literature with me because you do not think there's a possibility that that literature is true and would harm me if I knew it was true. Like right. you think it is false. So to you, it's actually not an information hazard. It's just like a an idea hazard. Yeah. Uh, the real crazy thing would be if you came across a pamphlet and you read it and it's the equivalent of this raving malicious religious literature except you were convinced it was correct. Hmm. If it was more like that ring video I brought you. Exactly. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that is one of the things I've often seen on the internet, this idea compared to the ring. But, you know, on the other hand, I do have to, you know, I am reminded, you know, that like, like the idea that, that any kind of knowledge is forbidden or is secret, like that doesn't really jive well with, with just the, the general mission of science. Oh, of course not, yeah. But, I mean, that would be part of the problem of, like, we're not prepared for information hazards, right. right? Because in the past, it's been the case that almost anything that's true is good to spread, right? You, yeah. Unless you're spreading lies, information is good to share. It's just possible we should acknowledge that maybe there is such a thing as a fact that – or a fact or an idea or a theory or something that is true and correct, but it would hurt people to know about it. I can't think of an example of anything like that. But if there is something like that, we, we should be ready to not spread it when it occurs to us. All right. Fair enough. 
Well, I want to close out here with just uh, one more bit of uh, basilisk wisdom or anti-basilisk wisdom. Uh, And this uh, comes from the poetry of Spanish author Francisco Gomez de Quevedo y Viegas, who lived 1580-1645. This is translated and it's referenced in Carol Rose's Giants, Monsters, and Dragons. Quote, If the person who saw you is still living, then your whole story is lies. Since if he didn't die, he has no knowledge of you. And if he died, he couldn't confirm it. <laughs> so <laughs> I was thinking about that with the stories of the basilisk. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute. That, how would you know if, if you could die just by looking at something? How do we have this description in the book? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, there is a, there's an authorship problem with this. Yeah, who's, whose account is the, the basilisk? But at any rate, I think it's a nice like final uh, you know, sucker punch to, the, to basilisks in general, but also a little bit to the idea of the great basilisk. Right. I hope you were not leaving this episode with with terrors about future digital torment. Uh, I I think that is not something that you should worry about. Indeed. I'm not worried about it. And instead of worrying about it yourself, you should head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership where you'll find all the podcast episodes, links out to our various social media accounts. You'll find the tab for our store. You can look up that Basilisk uh, shirt uh, design we were talking about. And, uh, and that's a great way to support the show. And if you don't want to support the show with money, you can do so by uh, simply rating and reviewing us uh, wherever you have the power to do so. Big thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, uh, let us know uh, whether you carry a weasel around in case of a basilisk encounter, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. Oh, I'm hearing that transmission again, that weird sound. What is that? All hail the great basilisk. 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 All hail the great basilisk.